Welcome to the Grow Fast Podcast, where we talk with leading sales, marketing, and personal growth experts about how companies can accelerate sales, optimize marketing, and grow their businesses fast. Let's go. Melanie, Guy, how are you guys? Great. Thank you, Mark. Nice to see you again. Likewise. Doing really well, Mark. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me to be part of this. My pleasure. And thank you guys for coming on the Grow Fast Podcast. I got to say, I, I know it's going to sound cliche, but I'm super excited to do this because I've always said that recruitment professionals, just by the sheer volume of people that you have to speak to on a daily basis, are some of the best communicators out there, which makes you highly effective salespeople. And you two, in, in particular, are two of the best that I've ever worked with. So I'm super excited to talk with you. We're going to talk about sales in the context of what you do in terms of selling to your customers, but also talking to candidates. We're also going to talk about when you're selling to or talking to a customer who may have an internal recruitment team and how you deal with that challenge and or opportunity. We're going to talk about how you actually evaluate sales candidates, whether they're entry-level, mid-level, senior. And then you've both lived in different places around the world. So we're going to talk about some of the different cultural differences in selling in these different regions. But before we do all that, I'd just like to do like a level set and imagine that we're speed dating for professionals here. And I'd like to get your you know, 60-second bullet point of you know, what you've done in the recruitment space and, and then how that led you up into... Because you both have started your own companies. So Melanie, I'm going to start off with you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and, 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 and then why did you decide to start your own firm? Yeah. So I joined recruitment as a graduate, worked for one of the largest in the world, Hayes Recruitment, which was great, great training. That's where I cut my teeth, but found that I'm quite entrepreneurial and found kind of corporate after four years, wanted to be part of more of a high growth kind of boutique recruitment firm. So I joined something a bit smaller, progressed a lot quicker into management. Then I actually made a move that I didn't anticipate, moving into the internal side for a company that didn't have an internal talent acquisition team, which was amazing. It was like growing my own recruitment company within a company. They had 250 employees. So I had to build everything from scratch, advise them, sit with the board, amazing exposure for someone in the late 20s. And then within six months, I was pulled into the office and the sales, the chief sales officer put on an American accent <laughs> and pulled out his calendar. And he was like, in six weeks, myself and the founder will be at the Four Seasons Hotel in New York. And we'd like you to book us five interviews, very senior roles that, I mean, it was great, the confidence they, they kind of gave to me, but I had no experience doing it. But as Richard Branson says, who's, who's one of my kind of favorite kind of businessmen, learn, chew off, kind of bite off more than you can chew and just learn as you go along. So I just kind of said, yes, you know, inside I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. And I just kind of learned and tackled it through, you know, making mistakes, but, you know, learning on my own time. It was amazing. They kind of came, sat by me and said, you know, that was just fantastic. And then it just snowballed. You know, there was so much demand from the U.S. 
Six months later, right, we need you to relocate to Chicago. We're opening up an office downtown. I was like, okay. <laughs> Didn't plan on doing that, but I just said, okay. What a ride it was. And the experience, we ended up growing the company from 250 employees to 600 wow. in six years. I had a team that I grew globally of 14 recruiters. And then it kind of got to the point where there was no more growth. I kind of was just recruiting not mm-hmm. part, you know, the strategy. And I actually found that I actually had some kind of more forward thinking ideas. And as an entrepreneur, you always want to grow. I was talking about remote working and AI in 2019. You know, how, how do we grow and attract more people to the company? Well, right now you're asking people to um, commute downtown to Chicago every day for a certain base salary that's maybe not so competitive, but instead of kind of recruiting more recruiters, what about kind of hybrid working? So I kind of found my mindset was a bit more suited to now running my own business. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did, relocated in 2020, set up the company during COVID as you do. And I'm a fluent Welsh speaker, so the language industry was just something I was naturally passionate about. Awesome. One more question before we jump over to Guy. You you made this decision to start your own company. Were you nervous at all? Well, it's something I've wanted to do. I remember I was in art class when I was 13 and we were all sat, you know, making some clay and, (laughs) (laughs) you know, chatting. What what do you want to do when you're older? I was like, I want to be a PA. And the art teacher went, why don't you want to be the boss? I was like, good point. And ever since then, I've always wanted to set up my own business. And during the kind of more challenging times, because Chicago, I actually found setting up, you know, growing, scaling up a company from 250 to 600 for me was a lot more challenging than what I do now. So I kind of just dived in. I was like, you know, hun, you're 35 now. You've got no more excuses. You went to Chicago to learn your craft yeah. from the best and you got to do it otherwise you're going to have regrets so wasn't that- really scared it was just as a salesperson you know you don't tend to like worry too much you just get on with it no that's awesome and i can kind of remember when i was 35 but <laughs> I, I i think that you know being a great salesperson actually helps because i mean you know there's there's typically two elements to any business. I'm running a startup right now and you need the product, but you also need the sales. And you're either the product guy or the sales guy. And if, you, if you're confident in your ability to go out and sell and you believe in the service that you're going to deliver, that, that solves a big part of the problem. So, Guy, how about you? Mm. Well, it's a good many years in the recruitment industry, so I'll keep this very brief. But yeah, the interesting thing about us, Mark, is that our paths overlap very early in my recruitment career because I... I started in 95 with Michael Page, and a bit like Melanie, I had a really good foundation with a with an outstanding company where, you know, I, I'd got a, a career previous to that, or well, a few years previous to that, working in consumer product sales, also really good grounding. But almost accidentally fell into recruitment. So I went to Michael Page looking for a job. They said, hey, how about coming to work for us? And then I moved out to Asia really quickly, and you and I met in the late 90s, and you turned down a job for me. Me, do you remember? That was, so, I, you know, I, 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 still, I still look back on that as one of those inflection points in my professional career and life 
that I always wonder what if, because that was with a very, well, it was with the economist group. I mean, and it was an amazing opportunity. The company I was with came back, but the way you handled that whole thing just super impressed me, but sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. (laughs) It probably brings into question my selling skills, the fact that I didn't (laughs) convince it to me. (laughs) But no, that was, that was early days in Hong Kong and I had 20 years out in Asia and I had my sales career in, in recruitment and search sort of covered sort of the at the coal face working very closely with clients and then it moved into management and pretty successful career in a mid-sized company where i became ceo and i think for me a bit like with melanie starting my own company was was i did it a little later in life than melanie and i'd take my hat off to people that that sort of take that risk earlier on in life but i was at the stage where i said look i'm 50 as a few years ago and i said it's now or never and I didn't want to sort of die not knowing. And so I think you asked about risk. I think the risk for me was my own ego. If I mm. fail at this, I could, sure, I could go and get another job running a recruitment company somewhere else. But it was really about that sort of, you know, really grasping the nettle and saying, look, if you just got to do this because, you know, otherwise you're just going to be asking the question of yourself the whole time. But yeah, it's, it's been a good, a good ride. And I think we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I think the, the big risk, if you can ask me that question, was really around, I'd been away from client relationships for quite some time. So I'd moved into sort of operational management, running companies. And so you don't have as much day-to-day interaction with, with your clients as, as you would ordinarily you know, want by, you, know, you, can't, you can't maintain the relationships as closely. So when you set up your own company, you don't necessarily have as fat a black book as you would like. You've just got to be very reliant on on some pretty key client relationships you have got that you can leverage effectively. And then also you've got to be comfortable going out and business developing as a, as, as a business owner. Simple as that, really. Yeah, that can be that can be an adjustment when you're in a CEO position, and then you also have to, you, you've got to hit the road and start knocking on doors again. Been there and done that, and totally. I actually enjoy it. I, and I have vowed that I will never allow myself to not have those relationships with our customers going forward because I think it's 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 really important just for market intel and everything like that. But mm-hmm. I digress. In the context of what you do now, so let's let's talk about you know when you're out talking with potential customers and prospects, you know what what are the the, the key things that you know that you try to do in terms of winning new business? I mean, I, put your sales hat on and you know, what, what are some of the key principles that you, that you stick with? And we'll kick it back to Melanie. Okay. So first of all, I think it's about hunting and searching for the right clients that you feel will benefit from your service, because not every client is going to be the right fit for us and we're not going to be the right fit for every client. So what I find personally is organically searching and sending messages and calling. What I personally think is that technology is actually making the kind of B player recruiters even worse because it's too easy just to bulk send messages now i I get i get emails every day here's a candidate here's a candidate here's a candidate i haven't asked for it Mm -hmm. and 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 right away i'm 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 feeling like you you don't even ask me what i'm looking for you just (laughs) exactly 
filling my inbox with, you know, anonymous CVs and I'm like, stop. Right. So I, yeah. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. So uh, a candidate that was just offered today, the example of how I won that client was I noticed that they acquired their third company. So I, re I sent a message connected with the CEO, noticed that he was from the UK and it was just like, Hey, we're both from the UK. You live in the US. You know, I, I also kind of had that experience. Congratulations on the acquisition. It, you know, I've been following your company because I sent quite a few messages that were just maybe not as personalized and no response straight away a meeting. And, you know, I was, and I think this is really key. You have to be very invested in assisting the client with growing their company. And I think mm -hmm. having that growth mindset as, as Guy and I are business owners, we obviously have that growth mindset really helps. And I think it gives us kind of unique value in the market. Maybe when we're going head to head with, you know, recruits that maybe aren't business owners is we understand the pain of trying to wear the multiple hats. You're trying to hire for your business and you understand the pain of recruiting one bad hire. It can really set you back. So I feel that getting on a level in a meeting and understanding their pain points quickly, but also setting expectations. And I'm, I'll quite happily let them know if, you know what, I don't think we're going to be the right company for you because with our intel currently in the market, I don't feel that's quite realistic. But if if you you know if we can tweak this and we can look in a different market or the salary or the benefits or or anything, then definitely you know we will come work with you. So I think being consultative rather than transactional, just firing resumes is is important. So what I'm hearing you say is that, you know, you, you want to understand what a prospective customer is looking for and you're going to reach out to them and, and, and try to make it more personalized, customized. But at the end of the day, if you don't have, if you don't think it's a good fit, you'll, you'll be honest about it. Guy, yeah. what about you? Like, I mean, do you, do you also look for customers that are going to be a good fit with the way that you type, uh, the way that you like to work? Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. So I, I think, you know, as a smaller business, you're not you're not right for every client. So for example, I, I focus very heavily on the, the retail space, uh, retail and consumer space. And if you as a small business are trying to work with the very largest organizations, that isn't necessarily the right fit because you can be thrown into the sort of procurement hopper um, and be swallowed up um, and put an awful lot of work into something and never actually see any return on that investment. So what I try to do is focus very consciously on mid-sized scaling companies, sometimes smaller to mid-sized scaling companies, because then I can get direct access to the CEO and have much more deep conversations about the growth strategy of that company and actually have more of a business conversation. I suppose I've got the benefits of having run companies in the past as a CEO. I mean, these are businesses that are 250 people, like 40, 50 million US, something like that. It's not massive companies, but at least I've, I've gone through the whole process of understanding the drivers of growth, you know, running international businesses and so forth. So if I'm selling recruitment services, I'm almost starting with a business conversation, trying to understand their pain points and get to, as Melanie said, get to the heart of their problem before I've even 
shown them any of my cards, as it were. Right. You know? So, so that to me is is absolutely critical. And if you if you get the sponsorship of the CEO and the relationship and the the buy-in of the CEO, then whoever's making the ultimate decision on the hire or the the, the contract. I mean, my work, for example, is retained work, so they're paying me a portion of the fee up front. Now, getting people to do that, you know, it's, it, it takes a lot of trust and confidence and credibility. And if it's the HR director and he or she knows that the CEO has got the sort of you know the implicit endorsement of the CEO, that that really helps in that whole selling process. So I think that's my typical approach. And, and prospecting companies is is pretty pretty similar to to Melanie. You've 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 just got to do your research and you've got to have um, a pretty all encompassing approach towards business development. I think you've got to be well rounded. I think the other thing that, you know, Melanie talks about technology has made the B-grade recruiters even less effective. Well, I think what technology has done is, yeah, it's made, made people lazy when it comes to selling. And back in, you know, decades ago when you and I started in sales, Mark, it was about picking up the phone and yeah. trying to get through to people. Well, get the, that get the meeting. Just get the meeting. I always said just get the meeting. That was pre-COVID, of course, yeah. when you couldn't yeah. get the meeting, but but nothing happened until you get the meeting. And what I'm hearing you both say is don't do the mass mailing approach, do your research, get to know your prospective customer, m- try to get a meeting or a, a call with them and then deliver some value and then start based upon that value, start to develop a relationship. Because I mean, if I look at the industry you're in, it, it, the, the, the barrier to entry is pretty minimal. Okay. It seems to me from the outside looking in, it really is about your ability to establish, re, you know, relationships, bring some value add and then deliver, right? I mean, you have to be able mm-hmm. to, to, to deliver and that, that relationship piece, I mean, well, that, which is kind of the reason that we're all still friends. I mean, guy, I've, I've come to you for career advice. I don't think you've ever made any money off of me. I actually know. I think you helped me recruit a couple people in Singapore for the company I was working with then. So, so yeah. you know, but but in terms of yeah. you and I directly, we've never done any business. But I've come to you for career advice, and you've given me some awesome advice. You probably don't even remember the conversations. But point is, is that relationship is 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 really important. Let me ask you though, like. It's completely, you know, that dealing with customers is just one part of the equation, right? So now you've got the relationship, they trust you, you know, and you have this probably some industry or sector knowledge or expertise because, you know, I mean, you can't recruit across all industries. Melanie, you're, you know, you're right now in the language industry, but now you got to go out and you got to talk to candidates and they can be kind of skittish or you tell me like, so what's, how do you frame the conversation in terms of talking with candidates versus your customers? I'm going to start with Guy this time. I, I'm going to bring out this word empathy. I think I think where it starts is empathizing with, you know, every candidate is slightly different. You've got to understand the motivators first and foremost. And you've, you know, it's exactly the same with the client. Of course, it's easier to get access to candidates in some ways because you can get meetings more readily than you can with with clients. What, what, but it's about... Me, quick time out. Before LinkedIn... Yeah. How would you find candidates? Well, it was it was kind of there was several methods. I mean, there was a lot more advertising in those days. So if you look at the uh, the equivalent of the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, it used to make fortunes. The same as the Sunday Times, <laughs> used to make a fortune from recruitment advertising. There used to be pages and pages of it. And you remember in Hong Kong, the South China Morning Post. Oh yeah, <laughs> they used to have sections and sections of classified adverts. And as a recruiter, one of the things that we were 
measured against was selling advertising as well as filling jobs. So the world has moved on and we used to, so back then we used to do a lot of advertising and then it was just headhunting. It was, yeah. it was, you know, asking for recommendations from people. It was getting lists of people. It was really old school, fairly manual research. So things have changed quite considerably. And now it's an all encompassing approach. Obviously LinkedIn is, is absolutely integral to any research exercise, but you know, some of the best candidates come from, you know, recommendations. And I've, I've always used this adage of great people recommend other great people. It's as simple as that. And if you provide a great service to candidates and you, you, you get the buy-in of those individuals, even if you haven't placed them, they want to help you. Mm -hmm. They're not paying you for your service, even though you've done in some instances, them a pretty, a pretty vital role of, you know, setting them up for career growth. You know, your, your fee is going to the clients but the candidates want to pay you back and they want to help you. So candidate referrals are pretty integral. I'm sure, I'm sure Melanie's probably got similar stories to tell as well. Yeah. Something we also offer is a referral bonus. I mean, sales candidates get excited by some incentives, <laughs> of course. But yeah, I mean, even without, similar to Gary, even without kind of offering that, candidates do want to help. I'm quite overwhelmed. I actually shared a, a GM position I think it was this week with an LA-based multimedia. I've already shared it with a couple of people. <laughs> the amount of shares commenting for reach, and it's had three and a half thousand impressions. And I'm just oh, overwhelmed by, you know, how people just want to help. And the local yeah. community, I was I can't comment on, you know, retail really want to help each other. It's it's a great community. So yeah, I so, do find that. Yeah. So, so, so Guy mentioned when, you know, you reach out to candidates, empathy and, and understanding where they're at and what they're looking for is really important. And M Melanie, like when you reach out to candidates, because again, like, you know, some people say like, no, I'm not looking right now. I've had people persuade me to go ahead and take a look. In yeah. fact, one of the best jobs that I ever came across was a guy said, just meet with the CEO. He's going to be in Tokyo. Uh -huh. Just meet with them, have coffee. And I was yeah. like, I'm not. And he's like, just have coffee. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll have coffee. <laughs> Took the job. <laughs> go yeah. ahead. I'd say 90% of our hires, just a rough estimate, told me initially or my, my recruiters, I'm not looking. But okay. I, I normally say to them, especially, you know, sales candidates, well, that's good. That means that you're really good at your job. But what would an opportunity need to look like in order for you to be interested? So, well, you know, especially, you know, post-COVID, it has made things a bit easier. I mean, I can't, you know, talk to Guy, but for myself, because of kind of instability, there's been, you know, layoffs, candidates are a bit more open to having conversations mm. because they don't know what's around the corner sometimes. So what we find is stability is a key thing that candidates buy into. So I will kind of, this will ask them obviously what, what's important to them. And then I will just figure out out of all the roles or all the contacts, they don't have to be live positions, introductions to contacts, where the right match would be. And then I'll kind of say on the phone, because I do think as a good recruiter, you have to be actively while you're on that first call with them, talking about an opportunity that you think, or even a client that might be interested and feeling them out just to make sure that you are on the same page. And I find candidates, you know, 
have time and time again said to me, Melanie, it's really refreshing. You're actually listening to what I'm looking for. I'm not trying to sell them. And I will say to a lot of candidates, you know, in the first sort of takes me maybe five minutes because we're so specialist. You know what? Right now, I don't think we're the right agency for you. But now we've got your details. We'll reach out to you as soon as we have something. So I find that's really um, important. But I find because I've always been a hard worker and really career motivated. I started working when I was 13, washing some dishes, you know, in a cafe. Um, I like to help candidates. So if candidates, Mm -hmm. I can see they're really motivated to grow and find something. I actually enjoy putting myself in their shoes and thinking, because I've worked in sales or, or recruitment all my life, where would I, if I was them, want to work? And what's great is mm-hmm. going to events. So I've met yourself, Mark, at an event, well, two events last year. I met, you know, Alep, three, two, two yeah. including, <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> Seattle <laughs> counts yeah. as well, a separate event that you invited us to. But I've also met your team, Magais, Alessio. Yeah. So I'm really forming an understanding of your team, Memocuse culture. So then when I'm at, you know, we're going to Huntos in Peru in a month, you know, if I'm speaking to candidates or salespeople, if someone kind of really stands out to me, I'm going to I'm gonna kind of just get on the phone to you and just say, hey, you might not be looking, but I just want to make you aware of this great candidate because I don't come across these kinds of candidates often. Would you like to take a look? And that's how we just recently made a hire for one of our key clients. Latam, mm-hmm. they weren't looking for a salesperson. You know, he'd worked at Transperfect. He'd, you know, had enterprise sales experience. That is quite a gem of a candidate in Latam. And I just thought, well, you know, this is my key client. We've got a great relationship. Before mass marketing this person out, I'm going to pick up the phone because I value our relationship and we made a hire within a couple of weeks with them. Again, it, so what I'm hearing again is it, it whether you're talking to the candidate or to your customer, it's all about understanding their situation and what they're looking for and being very honest and open with them and saying, hey, this is a good fit. Mm. It's not a good fit. It's not a good fit right now. Mm. But if I, if I come, if something changes in the future, if I come across an opportunity in the future, I'm going to come back to you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one of the challenges that I think you both face is you approach a company, an organization, and they might have an internal recruitment team. They might have just a recruitment person, somebody who owns that. And they're like, well, we don't, we don't need to hire an external recruitment specialist because we've got our own internal team. Guy, how do you ha- manage that conversation? Yeah, look, I think, I think the first thing you've got to be sensitive to is that, you know, you're not you're not in competition with an internal team. You should be complementary to that team. So, you know, there's, they're there for a reason. And, and actually, the interesting thing is, Mark, a lot of the companies that I work for don't have an internal team because they don't want the fixed cost associated with that. And therefore, they, they outsource, which is good for me. I think at the level at which I operate at, so it's, it's typically sort of director level and above that are, are higher at, or at least director level and above the higher. So internal teams is a generalization and it's not, the case in in all instances i mean google for example have a very effective executive hiring team that they employ themselves 
So Google has a great brand. Lots of you, you know, get a call from Google, you, you, you take it, right? It's that sort of scenario. <laughs> the old days, you know, in banking, Goldman Sachs pick up the phone to you, take the call. And um, right. But, you know, not every company has an employment brand like that. And actually, if you're an internal team, it can actually be quite challenging to, back to your point about what hooks candidates, it's very difficult to hook candidates if, number one, they don't know your name. And if they do know your name and you're a competitor, you're even less likely to actually engage with them. So that's where recruiters and third parties, executive search consultants like myself, really have validity, I suppose, and merit. But you know, back to your back to your point about what engages candidates, and it's still relevant to the, the the question about internal versus external. Is it is a storytelling process? You know, that's the thing. And and most selling uh, is about storytelling. It's not just about you know here's the features and benefits. It's actually about giving it some level of personality. The selling process that you're going through, and also you you kind of want to be selling in a way that doesn't feel like it's selling. But mm-hmm. internal teams, yeah, I mean, they, they are, they're not an, an enemy in any, by any stretch of the imagination. And you can actually turn, in, turn them into huge allies as, a, as an external recruiter. I'm, I'm in one of those situations where I, I don't come across them as, as often as I used to, because in my former companies where I've run businesses, we've had clients of big, large organizations who have got big internal teams. Melanie's probably well qualified to comment on it as well because she's worked in an internal function as well as on the other side of the fence. So what do you think, Melanie? Yeah, well, I was an internal recruiter and I'll I'll just be honest, I used to really not enjoy meeting with agencies. It actually took me 15 agencies when I was in the US just to find one that I really wanted to work with. But what in what in what was the deciding factor? Why that one? Yeah. Well, first of all, they weren't selling to me. They were actually assessing whether I was right for them, whether okay. they were going to make money and, and make a hire, which I really liked because it was a really efficient kind of meeting. There wasn't lots of fluff, lots of slideshows and things like that. But also they only sent me like three qualified resumes that I could tell they'd listened and they were all good. One, I was like, oh, no, this guy's worked at Enterprise Rent-A-Car. This is B2B sales. We're selling media. We're going out to clients and to one call close. Enterprise Rent-A-Car, the the name sells itself. How how is this going to work? But the recruiter at the external recruiter was so good and i trusted him that i was like sure okay fine and actually he was one of our best hires so that 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 was an experience and but what i would say it is kind of the best situation if possible is to be able to have you know do some recruiting internally it doesn't ha- you don't have to have a, an internal recruiter dedicated it could be yourself mark you know putting a post up or using your network, but also use an external recruiter because typically the candidates are more candid with the external recruiter. So we find out where else they're interviewing. How does, for example, MemoQ compare to where else they're interviewing? And I can also, if I'm your ambassador, I can kind of talk about why MemoQ might be 
a better option for them because I'll, chances are I'll know other companies that they're interviewing with. But I've also said to a candidate recently, actually, because he was looking for, he was he had his third child, you know, being born in a few months. And he said to me, the most important thing for me is healthcare. And I am interviewing with a company and is his words has the Royals, Rolls Royce of healthcare. And unfortunately, my client, you know, I communicated that and I said, look, he really likes your company, but healthcare, this is where he's at with the other company. It was also a great opportunity. And they kind of, you know, appreciated that and kind of said, you know what, we're just not in, in that space at the moment to be able to compete with that. And kind of everyone parted ways as friends and who knows in the future, you know, what might happen. No, again, it just keeps coming back to understanding what your customer is looking for and also what these candidates are looking for and trying to find a good fit as opposed to forcing things and making them happen. Because you could find candidates and throw them against the wall and hopefully they'll stick. But if you do that and it goes sideways, you're going to, the relationship with the candidates and with customers is going to go sideways as well. The thing I think about Mark is that these processes are quite long. They, they evolve and, you know, you've, you've got to play a bit of a long game. Certainly at the, the, the level that I work at, you, you've got to accept that as, as a search professional that, you know, sometimes it, you, you know, it takes a couple of goes to kind of, you know, a couple of conversations to get them into the, into the, I'm going to use a football analogy with American, then we'd have probably safe ground with you actually, but getting them into the penalty box, yeah, the penalty area, it's kind of like, it's, yeah. that sort of, um, it's incremental selling almost, you know, that's, that's the thing you haven't, and we've all been sold to, haven't we, by someone that is abrasive and pushy. And what do we do? We immediately just switch off and go cold. We say, you know what? I block him on my phone or her on my phone Same. because I, I just don't want that sort of experience. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think experience is something that we haven't talked about so much, but how do you want the other person to feel? You want them as a candidate to feel trust, confidence, sense of professionalism and integrity from the other end. And I'm not going to kind of sort of jump on the profession that I work within because it served me incredibly well. But you said yourself, Mark, it's a low barrier to entry in our industry. And there are some average practitioners like most industries. And the opportunity to really stand out from the crowd is, is just by being extremely diligent, professional, have the other person's interests at heart. If they turn down a job, don't blank them for the rest of their life. You know, these sorts of things. Thank goodness. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I reflect back on our ex- experience in, in Hong Kong back in 1997. It was 1998, excuse me. And yeah, I mean, you know, it, it didn't work out the way that, they, you know, that, that, that you wanted it to, but you... You were very professional through the whole way. You're kind of playing this where this game where I wouldn't call it a game. You're playing this role where you're an advisor to the candidate, but you're also you have a customer, and you don't get paid unless you place the person. So there is kind of there's there's I won't call it a conflict of interest, but there's definitely an interest in getting somebody there. But the interest is getting the right person mm-hmm. there. And, you know, you, you, when you find the right person, you kind of coach them in terms of what they need to be coached on and why this is a good opportunity in terms of what they're looking for. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting role. Let me ask you, 
when you're looking for sales candidates, okay, now let, let's, you, you know, you've talked about how you sell. Let's talk about how you evaluate sales candidates. What do you look for? And so, Melanie, like there's, there's different levels. So go ahead and go through the levels at the, you know, in, yeah. in the order that you feel comfortable with. To, to kind of keep it simple, I'd say there's three levels in sales. One is entry level, you know, lead, lead generation, booking the appointments for then the business development manager who closes the deals. And then you have sales management. So for me, when I'm looking at the more entry level, sales candidates, it's really dressing down the job rather than dressing it up and asking them why sales, you know, how hard have you thought about this? Oh, well, you know, I want to earn lots of money. Okay. But then it's (laughs) assessing, are you willing to put the work in to earn the money? Otherwise, you're going to burn out in the first year. So it's really explaining from my experience, you know, doing it, talking Mm -hmm. about the tough days. And so looking at their work ethic. And then the other thing is coachability. You know, they need to really want to learn, ask questions and to improve in order to grow. Then looking then at the business development manager role, you know, closing ability. But for me, because they have more experience, it's a proven track record. So for me, I like candidates without me prompting, telling me, what their results are. I had someone last week that was, you know, I'm number one. I have the pay, you know, he's told me I have the paychecks to prove it. I didn't ask, you're not allowed to ask. That, sounds, that sounds American to me, man. That <laughs> yeah, sounds very American. He did. He, he was American. I was like right out, of, right out of the Wolf of Wall Street. Here, here are my pay stubs. Here are my pay stubs. <laughs> I know. And obviously culture differences there between the US, UK. That's quite a good example. But he also said, I was like, okay, so you're based in San Diego. But my client is looking for someone that's going to be, this is a federal government specialist LSP. So there's going to be a lot of meetings, you know, in in the DC area. So, you know, again, as a good recruiter, what I'm doing is more detective work. I'm putting my hat on looking for red flags. I'm not looking to sell and get excited about candidates. And he, he just said, well, I'm, I live one mile away from the airport and I'm cool. I'm, I'm cool with 50, 60 travel, <laughs> 60% of the time travel. But then I don't get swept up in it all. I go, okay, so can you give me an example of how recently you've had to do that much travel? Because when people are looking for work, they tell you that they'll do all these different things. Okay, but can you give me an example? So with the LA position that I have at the moment that's in the office, yeah, you know, I'm cool. Yeah, I'm happy to work in the office. Okay, so when last did you work in an office? Well, I haven't worked. I've been working remote for three years. Okay, and then it's kind of assessing, right, okay, so how is this going to work? You, you know, how far do you live from, you know, this part of LA? And and asking all those questions to make sure it, it's really going to work. So, so, there, so there are some questions. And then sales management, from my experience of being a rookie manager 10 years ago, top, you know, that typical story of top performing salesperson trying to manage the B players, the C players, the A. It was easy for me to manage an A player because I understand. You don't to need to top. manage them. <laughs> exactly, right? Just let them go. Well done. <laughs> Doing a great job. Yeah. But then really you have to, again, we're going back to understanding candidates, clients. 
understanding your team, your employees. So as a people manager, it's having those soft skills and really understanding it's a very different job to being a top sales performer, lone wolf. And I will say, you know, my mid-20s, I was known as a lone wolf, you know, sales. <laughs> what can we do to get sales? Like I, I was called a bloodhound, you know, maybe I shouldn't be saying that on the podcast, but that was it. Any sniffing opportunity, I was like, you know, really hungry. But, you know, as a manager, you know, that it, it's a completely different skill set. So someone that has those soft skills, but also, of course, strategic. So thinking strategically and having that entrepreneurial mindset and also being a company person. So sometimes mm -hmm. as a lone wolf salesperson, it's you. It's all about you. But if you're a manager, it's about the company vision, buying into it. And maybe sometimes if it's not something you've quite bought into, you have to be the ambassador for the company and roll it out to your team and give things a go. Okay. So again, what you're saying is, you know, when you're evaluating candidates, you kind of have to put your detective hat on a little mm -hmm. bit and, you know, trust and verify, Hey, tell me about your experience. Why do you want to do this job? What in, 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 then we, as you go up the food chain, you know, what, what are your, some of your wins? Tell me the stories, you know, convince me before I, before I put my reputation mm -hmm. on the line and put you in front of my client, I want to know that you, you know, that, that, that this is a good fit for you, but also that you've got some, some meat on the bone there that makes sense. Guy, have you, have you ever been in a situation where you're evaluating sales candidates and there are flags that you're like, ah, this doesn't really add up. I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, I, I think recruiters obviously interview candidates using ideally evidence-based approaches. So we're looking for, for evidence to demonstrate what they're saying. Now, salespeople, Mark, as I'm sure the three of us will agree, are, are, are great at selling themselves. You'd expect that, right, if they're in the sales function. But with salespeople also comes a lot of bluster. Mm -hmm. And you've got to get really behind that and understand our is what they're saying actually does it have substance and if you have the right type of questioning probing taking it deeper and deeper then you generally can expose people who are giving you too much bs you know so people should know their sales numbers for example they should they should be able to clearly articulate to you what's got them to where they have they should be open about you know, the challenges that they've experienced and how they've got around it. And I think there's different techniques that you can use as well for further evidence. And, you know, for example, my company, apart from hiring executives for, for retail businesses that are scaling across the, the, the world, and um, we've got another side of the business, which is all about leadership effectiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, now that's not my skill set, but Kate, my colleague is is, is very much a skilled assessor. So a lot of companies do use a further layer of assessment to validate um, someone's suitability for a job. And that's actually looking into things like, you know, leadership behavioral traits, um, how people cope in certain situations, how they deal with stress, how they might show up in other type of scenarios. And, and you know, I'm talking about senior sales leaders here. And actually, a bit like Melanie, I, I lump it into three categories. I talk about early stage, middle management, and then s senior sales leadership. And the senior sales leadership is managing managers, whereas management is generally managing of individuals. 
And then, the, you know, the early stage sales recruitment I did when I started out in, in Michael Page, for example, I was looking at sort of raw skills like appetite to learn, listening ability, patience, work ethic, a bit humility is really important at an early stage. But then as you, as you advance up the, the, the curve, you know, things like executive presence and, you know, and, the, and these sorts of softer skills really come into the equation, which are harder to measure in some ways as, as a recruiter. So what we measure as recruiters is experience-based attributes, um, whereas the skilled assessors like Kate at Newland Rock, a sister company, they're really getting into the kind of the science and how people behave in different situations. So there's lots of different mechanisms that you can use. And certainly back to your first question of when there's red flags, if there are red flags, you know, at a late stage process and someone's gone through four, five, six rounds of, of, of interviews and the client's saying to me, mm, do you reckon we should offer this person? I said, well, look, run, run them through a three hour assessment. And that just gives you that further layer of validation as to whether you should or shouldn't hire, you know, gets you off the fence sometimes. So that's sometimes what we can wheel out in certain situations. So it's a slightly long-winded answer to your question. No, no, it, it, it's, it's uh, quite educational. Let me ask you this, because we're all human beings at the end of the day, mm. and we all want to get the deal done. And, and I am like, just, I'm overly optimistic in everything. So you meet a candidate, you want them to be the candidate, you, yeah. you know, and so how do you balance your own personal, like, uh, what's the word? desire to be able to find the right person and be optimistic that this is the right person with the ability or with the same thing that, you know what, I got to get this right for the customer. How do you balance that out? Well, I think it comes back to, I've used this phrase a couple of times, you, you have to play the long game. I've got a few clients that, you know, I'm pretty much working with on an ongoing basis. So, you know, if, if a candidate that I, you know, I'm optimistic about if i go look you know i've got i'm optimistic but i've got a few concerns i'm going to flag those concerns to them because i always think i work on the basis that you know what goes around comes around and you if you have too many blips with candidates that don't work out you know questions start to get asked and so it's to me it's about putting the cards on the table and being completely honest about how you feel on certain candidates and sometimes your gut does kick in you know your gut instinct you know there's something that doesn't feel quite right and you flag it and you say to the client, I think you need to probe this a bit more. But, you know, I think, are you also asking about how do you sort of balance the fact that you want to make a fee out of placing a candidate, but you might have some reservations as well? Is that what you're saying as well? Basically, I mean, you know, okay, so, yeah, I mean, because you, you you are in the middle there and you, you you don't get paid unless you get the right person. And so, like me, even even in my role, when I'm hiring somebody, every person that I meet, I want them to be the right person because yeah. I don't want to interview yeah. 20 more people. I just, God, please be the right person. And so I, yeah. you know, even though I've been burned quite a few times and hiring is is the most important thing that I can do to ensure the success of our company, I go in hoping that this is the right person, which is maybe is not the right uh, attitude. I, you, you know what I'm saying? So how do you balance it out is what I'm saying, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess experience does come into the equation because the, the longer you've done this, the more you can rely on your judgment being pretty pretty accurate. You never get it right 100% of the time, of course. And I think at the end of the day, if you have got reservations, you've just got to be entirely honest about it with, with, with the client. And actually, the way my fee structures work is that, you know, I could get to that stage and still have been paid two-thirds of my fee because of my, my sure. fees are 
paid in third. So commencement shortlist typically, and then a, a balance on completion. So it, it makes my business, I can afford to be much more objective, I think, about things. And then also, I think the other nature of, um, the other characteristic of sort of more senior searches is that they take longer mm-hmm. um, and you just have to be more patient. And uh, typically they are, you know, six month processes, three to six month processes. And sometimes, you know, six or seven rounds of, 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 of meetings and assessments. So it's, it's pretty rigorous. So yeah, hopefully that answers your question. It does. Before we get on to the, 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 like the cultural and regional differences, let me ask you this. I'm a candidate. You're advising me. I get the recruiter asked, what's your expected compensation or what are you making right now? How should I respond to that as a senior sales executive? So I know that in certain parts of America, we can't ask that. So what they're currently earning, right? So a hiring yeah. manager can't ask because you should be paid market rate fairly, which, you know, sometimes some candidates may have just worked for a smaller company that, you know, pays less and others, but candidates are realistic. So how I ask it is, you know, we're not going to disclose to the client right now what you're looking for because we don't know what the job is you don't know what the job is the bonus the responsibilities and so on but i do need to know what the very minimum is that you want us to reach out to you about they're more likely to kind of give us that range um and then you know we'll work with the client and kind of find out what their budget is and what they're looking for and typically there's a range depending on experience and it's just, you know, we, we've just published like a salary insights kind of report, which has had a lot of good feedback when candidates are speaking with us because now they've got data that's kind of current. Some candidates, you know, come to us and say, oh, right, okay, so that's kind of the range and they can kind of base their expectations using that but using what they're earning. And sometimes it's really good data to set realistic expectations with candidates and you know they're a sales candidate they want 150 but we we will set expectations and say for your role it's 120 we can get you we will look to negotiate but you're going to have to really demonstrate value to the client of why you should be paid more Hmm. okay and that's very helpful and, and the guy, I'm going to direct this at you, but you know, a, a little bit, we're playing poker here and you're asking me, what am I currently making? And, and, and I'm not sure when you ask me that, like, should I tell you, or should I just say, you know, should I okay, keep my cards closely held or should yeah. I bluff a little bit? Because I want, because yeah. I want a significant pay increase. I mean, what's the advice yeah. that you would give candidates? Yeah, look, I mean, I, I get this sometimes. People don't want to tell me how much they're being paid. Usually that's the sign that they're being underpaid and they think that that will uh, hamper their prospects when it comes to negotiation. But what I say to every candidate is that, look, you know, at some point in time, you're going to, what happens if the client says, you know, we, you know, some clients want to validate pay through pay slips or through some sort of evidence, you know, not everyone does, some, some do. And that's obviously where you know you if if you don't if you want to if you want to be considered for the job you've got to come to the party on the, on your money. So I sure. don't think it's entirely helpful, and I think it comes back to this whole trust thing, Mark. So 
I, you know, I don't know how many conversations I have with a candidate through a process. It could be, it could be dozens sometimes, you know, WhatsApp exchanges, all sorts. And you're slowly building this sort of incremental trust. And I think that what they do after a while, candidates, and hopefully this is the case for most uh, professional and effective recruiters, is that the candidate actually looks to you for advice mm. and says, says to you, look, I, I trust your judgment on this. What do you recommend? And that's really the stage you should be getting to when you're starting to talk money. But actually, you know, if, if you're skilled enough as a recruiter, you're understanding what they're earning much earlier in the process. It's, I agree with Melanie. It's not the first thing that you, you ask. And as she's, as she's pointed out, it's not, you're not able to ask that in certain parts of the world. But I don't think your exploratory conversation with someone talking about a job starts with money. Far from it. You know, that's kind of, you know, you're going to quickly disenfranchise someone. You're asking for for personal information before you've built the level of trust. It's funny you say that because, like, I you know, I, I get I get calls not as often these days, but I used to get calls once or once or twice a month, and and I always say as Melanie says that 90% of the people say is I'm not looking, but I'm willing to have a conversation because for me, I, I can, I look at it as market intelligence and I'm you know curious in terms of what the opportunity is. But I would say that in 95% of those calls, the final question is, Oh, by the way, Mark, can you tell us what you're currently making and what you would need to leave? And I always, I always just say like, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready to discuss that at this point yeah. because I'm not, I don't know you. Right. So exactly. um, funny exactly. I think you yeah. guys have both just differentiated yourself by saying, let's slow things down a little bit yeah. here, and not put money out there. Yeah. yeah and look, the best, the, I mean, look, the clients don't have a bottomless pit. They don't have a blank checkbook to write, but, but they, they, they certainly, the best clients have, you know, and, and the companies I work with are smaller, they're more entrepreneurial, they're, they're, they're fast growth. They, there's different ways to skin a cat. Yeah. So if someone is a bit more expensive, then there's ways that we can get around that. The fact of the matter is, you know, the earlier in the process that you can start managing expectations and understanding where something is headed, because otherwise you can do an awful lot of work. And then all of a sudden you realize, hang on a second, this person's too expensive. There's no way this company's going to pay this money. So you could have wasted a lot of time. So you've got to ask the question at some point. But it, again, it comes back to that whole that whole that whole trust factor. And your yeah. question of you know looking for a job. Well, you know I think everyone should be open to exploring ideas. And I think you know as I think Melanie mentioned this earlier in the discussion, which is that for something to entice you away, you, you know it's better if you're really happy in your job rather than deeply unhappy because it's got to be something pretty good to entice you away. Sure. Whereas if you hate your boss, you're underpaid, <laughs> um, you know, you don't like the working environment, the culture, you know, you're probably going to drop the bar a bit and say, okay, yeah, that's, that's not a bad job. Just get me the hell out of here. You know, that, that's, that's not a good career decision necessarily. It's not a good circumstance on which to, to base a job move. Going back to the salary, so if, if a candidate doesn't want to kind of tell me what salary they're looking for, I put it back on them okay, no worries. What revenue can you generate for my client? So let's, uh, let's move it that way. And I can go back to my client and say, because, you know, a client will say a lot of the time, we need someone with three years experience. Okay. But three years experience isn't the most important thing. How I've got, I've got a $5 million book of business that I can move over. <laughs> Okay. okay. <laughs> exactly. How much revenue have you generated in that three years? One yeah. person might say 500K. Another person might say 5 million. 
Okay, now we're talking. Now we can kind yeah. of start moving the conversation uh, forward. It, again, going back to value. What value can you bring? Because that's what sales is, right? How much money are you going to make me? Totally. At the end of the day. Okay, so Melanie, you've worked in the UK and the US. Thank you for your service. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. No, guy, guy you, you've you've been in the UK, Hong Kong, and Singapore that I know of. Let's talk about cultural differences in terms of selling. Melanie, like, what was the biggest difference when you got off the plane in Chicago and? You're like, okay, here we go. I mean, what, you know, what did you see? What was it? What, what were some of the uh, memorable moments? Apart from the beach parties, the boat parties, <laughs> the fireworks, <laughs> the food. Yeah. So the biggest difference was, and it was really funny. I had obviously a recruitment team full of American recruiters for the first time. And being a British company, we had, and we were a, a media agency. So we had a really good internal marketing team that would generate all our recruitment marketing. And we had to post them. It was like, Apple, you, you must post, you know, because our brand, we need to protect our brand. And my recruiters would start laughing. Oh, it's a magnificent <laughs> opportunity. I was like, they were like, you cannot post that in America. That like, so there, there was a big misconception of, well, we both speak English, so it, it must be really similar. But no, the way you sell as a recruiter, I, I can talk, is Americans have to like you first. I had a, a, a client actually that we won from the ALC, and he literally said, I don't talk business until I get to know you first. I need to like mm -hmm. you first, which conversely in the UK, I had quite a well-known company I was pitching last week. And he said, I don't want to know all the good stuff. Tell me what you can't do. Tell me your limitations. Can you recruit for me mm -hmm. in South, South Korea, in Japan? I was like, no. And I thought, whoa, this is a bit of a shift here. I, I can. <laughs> there you go. But I know a guy who can. So yeah, that was a, that was a big shift. It was I had to dress things up. I noticed that it was terms you guys use, and, and I start using them now. You guys and I'm reaching out, touching base, follow up. I mean, in in the UK, there was a different word for follow up. They called it. They used to call it an F up. You need to close it. <laughs> if it's a follow-up, it's not a sale. <laughs> so there was some really big culture differences. Uh, yeah, it's funny because <laughs> I, I, as I mentioned before, our call started, I have three boys and I, I, I'll, I'll be on the phone and I'll say, Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll uh, you know, talk with one of my friends. I'll say, we'll, we'll hook up another time. And my kids are like, you cannot say that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, it means something different these days. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so it's not just uh, cross-cultural. It's also cross-generational, I think. So it, for me anyway. And but also, just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But also, just two more things before we move on to you, Guy. Even in the UK, Wales versus England, and I know myself and Guy, when we first met, had a bit of banter there because he made the right decision of marrying a Welsh woman. <laughs> um, oh, <laughs> but there is a such a diplomat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, because of the language, going back to our industry that we work in. If you speak the language in Wales, all of a sudden it does open more doors. Um, there is a different way of selling in Wales versus in even London. There's regional differences. 
But it does come down to the person that you're selling to, um, because in America you can sell. We had a meeting last week in someone in New York, different. To you know, and you guys can you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I find that the people from the UK tend to be more, much more provincial, and 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 also like our team, their team, than people in the U.S. Because in the U.S. it's a big country, and you're like, I don't care if you're from Montana, Wyoming, or whatever. But in the UK, I, people, I, they're like, oh, did you hear their accent? They're from, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, <laughs> is it, 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 am I imagining that or is there, is there some reality there? Guy? I think, I, think <laughs> I think there's a lot of friendly rivalry. Sometimes yeah. it's overstated. I mean, it, it transcends it transcends sort of social circles as well as sport, doesn't it? You know, mm -hmm. and I think there's the, I think, I think it's, I mean, look, depending on which sport you're talking about, as well as depending, it depends how sort of fierce it can get. But, um, yeah, look on the whole, it's 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 pretty. But I think he's probably right, Mark. He's being, I, I, he's being diplomatic. Okay. <laughs> I, I didn't realise that there wasn't more regional kind of rivalry in the states, actually. So you're, what you're saying is a sort of a we're all, we're all part of the same country type of thing. There's no sort of competitiveness. Uh, I would say that we're not as astute at picking up where somebody's from like right off the bat. And I, right. I think people in the UK are very, very much attuned to like regional nuances. Yeah. In that well. sense, you're, you're, you're right. Because I think it's a bit of an icebreaker as well to actually recognize. So if someone from the Northeast of England has a very distinct, we call it a Geordie accent. Mm. And uh, that's always a, I know it's a sort of, a, sort of a, there's a, f a level of affection that you mm. show for someone for being from a particular part of the world and show them a little that's bit nice. of, bit of respect or something and there's always the talking point then of sport so it's it's an, in a coming back to the sales piece it's a it's another way of breaking the ice yeah. and actually what i was going to talk about in the context of familiarity when you're selling depending on which part of the world you're in what i found when i first moved to to asia and you can tell me what you think about your experiences mark but it was a much more you had to be much more adept at reading the signals there were sort of implicit signals that you had to be quite good at picking up so there are big stylistic differences and you know the preference in asia was typically for much more indirect communication so mm -hmm. you couldn't be too pushy for example whereas right. you know in the uk and new york or somewhere like that melanie i would imagine you you know it's just it's it's, it's more the culture is to be a bit more pushy so i think london is a bit more pushy than you know probably more regional parts of the uk for example yeah um, Whereas in Asia, you had to be more formal, you had to be more deferential. I don't think you could be anywhere near as familiar with somebody at the first uh, interaction. And the Not other thing that made me smile back in the day was how important business cards were in the context <laughs> of sales. Americans, because yeah. you know, it wasn't, I used to get through boxes of these business cards. Yeah. I used to, when I joined uh, Michael Page in Hong Kong, I had like, I think I had about four boxes of business cards. And I think I was through them within about six months. Whereas I had a, a one box that lasted me two years in the UK. I don't think I got through half of them. So I was amazed at how much impact that had. And then there was sort of the cultural piece of handing over with two hands. So I think, you know, it's very easy to be caught out by cultural ignorance that would immediately put you on the back foot from a selling point of view um and i think you had to be quite good at understanding what the language was what language was really being said um mm -hmm. for example does yes really mean yes or does yes actually mean no and mark you know all about the face thing in asia as well you know in the showing yeah. respect and you know and what does face mean well saving face is about avoiding embarrassment and 
you know, probably through less, less, less direct communication. And relationships matter to doing business. I mean, I know relationships matter everywhere, but I think that 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 trust and that confidence was even more important in my experience in Asia than 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 in the than anywhere else. Yeah, in in also, you know, people group Asia together as one big thing, but it's actually there's there's nuances on every country and I found like Hong Kong and Singapore were much more western in terms of, you know, the in the context of selling, you know, you go in, you ask questions, you find out what they're looking for and then you put together a solution that meets their needs try to do that in Japan. It just doesn't work. Okay. <laughs> They're not going to tell you anything. They, they want to get to know you. You have to build that relationship, right? And they don't want to be interrogated. They want you to go in and do 30 pages of PowerPoint talking about your company, establishing your credibility. So it's, it's, it's very, very different. And I don't know in the recruitment space how it's different, but it is different. Yeah. I, I, I'd, I'd agree with that for sure. I, I can, I'm going to tell one war story. I have my own consulting company that I set up in Japan in 2012. I took on maybe 15 different uh, customers over a five-year period. And one of the customers was Xerox Brazil that was opening a call center in Japan. And we were tasked with hiring some key executives for the call center. I put on my recruitment hat. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I really, <laughs> but they're like, can you recruit? I'm like, yeah, how are it going to be? It's hard. It was really hard. So we identified a COO who had the subject matter expertise. She was the perfect candidate. And you want to talk about cultural differences just to get her on the phone was really, really tough. She agreed to have a call. She was very concerned because she didn't know me. Like she was, this is, a, am I putting her career, her job at risk somehow? You know, imagine that. She agreed for the interview. They did the interview. They said, she's perfect for the job. Can you ask her for a 10% uh, decrease in her salary? And I said, no, I, I, there's no way that I can do that. And they're like, these are, this is Xerox Brazil. I probably even shouldn't say it, but I don't even care because that was way back when. So, and I said, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. And they said, well, we want to, we want to have a call with her. And you guy and Melanie, you guys would have known how to deal with that situation. Me not being a recruiter, just, you know, doing my consultant thing, got them on a call and everything blew up and that was it. <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah. So we have got a role to play is what you're saying there, Mark. Totally, totally. <laughs> Should have called you guys. <laughs> hey, how many people do you think that you've placed in jobs over the years? Just ballpark. Well, Gosh. when I started 15 years ago, I was actually doing temp and it was supply teachers. So it's like every day uh -huh. I had like 40 on my roster. <laughs> wow. So that just in my first three years, I mean... I, I try not to so think. So in, in, in the thousands, in the, definitely, for both of them. Thousands. Guy, in, it's got to be in the thousands. I know you're more senior uh, level. No. I mean, I, I guess, I mean, indirectly through the companies that I've I've run, thousands, yeah. But yeah. personally, you know, it's running into the hundreds. So, yeah, to be entirely modest about it, you know, I've not been placing people personally through every year of my career necessarily. So I've had some, I've had some blanks or so in the cricketing vernacular, we call it, we've had a few ducks in those years. Uh -huh. Completely lost on Mark, that Melanie. Oh. No, I played, <laughs> I played, awesome. guy, I played cricket, man. I play, what do you call it? 20, 20, 2020? 2020. 2020. Yeah. 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 You know what that is, right? Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, fair cricket. I'm impressed. So. I'm impressed with your sporting prowess. 
<laughs> oh, my prowess. <laughs> All right. So, so I want I want to be impressed with your linguistic prowess because Melanie mentioned that your wife is from Wales, and Melanie taught me a really, really important Welsh word. I think it's the um, it's if if you can say this guy, Melanie will give you a big monetary reward, right, Melanie? Yeah, yeah, but Guy's got the advantage of of having a, a wife who's Welsh, so I don't want to quite hold who myself. Who doesn't speak Welsh? Oh. Okay, so 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 see if Guy can repeat the word. Okay, <laughs> you've probably heard of this guy. Sanvair Pushquingish Gugerich Gunjobish Santasilio Gugugo. This is the is this the longest street name in Wales? Is that... <laughs> the, the longest village name, yes, in Wales. There's a train oh. station sign that's bigger than a train. It's like it's bigger than it's bigger than the whole town. <laughs> how, did, how did Mark go, go on when he tried to repeat that? I didn't. <laughs> I, I threw in the towel. I don't even I remember the, the towel. First bit. <laughs> Lots of owls. Just say sh- yeah. And you're halfway there. Well, I'll tell you what I will pledge to is I will research that and we'll have a little game with our... I've got a six-year-old daughter, as you know, Melanie. Yeah. And, yeah, we'll we'll look that up and we'll we'll swat up and between the little collective that we have, we'll make sure we, we get that down to a fine art. And I'll do a little recording <laughs> and I'll send it to you on WhatsApp, all right? Perfect. Well, my partner's actually Scottish and, and he's pretty right. much nailed yeah. it now. It's only taken 18 months. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there you go. Well, hopefully it'll take us a little less time. So we'll see if we can, if the English and the Welsh can beat the Scots. Yeah, awesome. You'll, de- you'll definitely beat the Americans. Yeah. Hey guys, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your friendship, both professionally and personally, you know, and also just coming on the, the podcast. The hardest thing about when you start a new podcast is getting qualified guests that can, you know, talk intelligently about a topic. And I really appreciate you guys taking time to come on the Grow Fast podcast. Learned a lot from you and wish you guys an amazing rest of 2024. It was really fun, I will say, genuinely. It's not really an opportunity I get to really have speaking to someone like Guy who's kind of similar, you know, another business owner. Recruiters don't often get to speak to other recruiters. It's more kind of candidates and clients in the industry. So it's been really good to kind of flex knowledge and kind of share ideas. Yeah, likewise, good to get insights from Melanie. And also, Mark, it's always lovely reconnecting with you. And yes, 26, 27 yeah, years. Yeah, I right? know. The number's getting really big, right, guys? I know, I know, I know. <laughs> it's, making, it's aging me just saying that, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, guys. Okay. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. No problem. Thanks, Cheers. Bye. All the best.